it is 12 o'clock and we're going to go ahead and get started. So welcome to the Fearless Authenticity webcast. Um, this is our 10th episode. Woo! Um, <laughs> Double digits. It's a milestone for us. We started with just Sherry and Jim talking about authenticity in general, what makes a person authentic, what are the challenges in being authentic, um, Jim sharing his research about authenticity, Sherry sharing her research into the leader-follower relationship, and we then decided to start inviting guests who talk about authenticity in different areas, and we've had some some really good shows. We did one on uh, white privilege. We did one with sports figures. Uh, we did one with authenticity and women. And the last one was with educators. So today we're talking about authenticity and lawyers. And we have three fabulous guests on today. So please welcome Bill Dolan of Jones Day. Wave, Bill. Say hi. Hello, everyone. Um, <laughs> we've got Jennifer Gomez Hardy of Gomez Law Group. And we've got Patty Jones of the Law Offices of Patty Jones. Um, what I'd like to ask everyone is to please, please, please engage in the chat room, ask questions. Um, leave comments, our guests and our speakers, um, and obviously our doctors will be checking back in with us. So engage, and right now I'm going to turn it over to the doctors of authenticity, Dr. Sherry Maloof and Dr. James Smith, Jr. Thank you, Sin. Thank you. Dr. Sherry, here we go again, huh? Back together. <laughs> All right. Should we put them on the hot seat right away or should we let Absolutely. them? Absolutely. I think they can handle it. <laughs> well, I spent 14 years in corporate and I would say after the fourth year is when I got the bug to speak, to lead, to teach. My first four years was marketing and then I moved to human resources training and development. And after that, it took off. But I got the bug after around four, four years or so. My question to you is, this is for all three of you, whoever wants to go first, when did you get the law bug? When did you get the legal bug? When did you say it is time for me to pursue a career in law? What happened? What did it feel like? How did you know? Who would like to kick us off? Bill looks anxious. <laughs> I'm going to volunteer Patty. <laughs> that's, Patty, that's, you were that, volunteered. That's, 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 I think that's called voluntold. My story is fearless. so very unconventional that it's not really fair. Because, um, you know, I, in addition to the, my law practice, I'm a law professor. So I teach at two law schools in Boston, one at, the, at Boston University Law School. And I teach entertainment law, where I teach IP and then in entertainment. Then I teach entertainment law to JD students at New England Law Boston. So I had to come. I was a music educator before I went to law school. I never wanted to be a lawyer. There was no, it wasn't even a thought to me. Um, I, I had no, I, I actually didn't know what I was going to do when I finished teaching. I, I taught at two um, 
private schools, one in the Midwest uh, in Kansas City, uh, the Pembroke Hill School was Pembroke Country Day School, boys in the girls school, and then I taught New Orleans. So I taught New Orleans for two years, uh, choir, music, choral music, and general music, and then sang professionally in both of those. So I was, I'm music. I was all about classical, jazz, blues, all the stuff, American roots. And then, and then I ended up um, moving back home to Boston without any idea of what to do. And my very close friend was married to the U.S. attorney under Ronald Reagan, um, head of the U.S. attorneys in Kansas City. And he said, you should go to law school. I said, no, no, no. He said, go home to Boston, sit in a class. I sat in one class. I sat in one class and I hightailed it out of there. So it was not in the cards for me to go to law school until I joined a board and everybody that was on the board was a lawyer. And they said, you'd be a really good lawyer. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And then finally, I, I had I, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I was working at a, a French food company, speaking fluent in French. And finally, I realized that, you know, it was probably the right move for me. But Ooh. I'm in a very special area of the law. So even going to law school like Bill and, and Jennifer, it, my area is not, it doesn't even, it, it, it sometimes intersects with what they do, but uh, I am in, in that whole area of the law is just so special that I had to even get from being a lawyer to entertainment. That is a, another trajectory. And that person that told me to do that was, um, that's an, a whole other story of how I got into entertainment. But And, and we're, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. This show is just starting. Just but, but I didn't want to go to law school. I didn't want to go to law school. Your honor, order, order. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, how about you? Let's get uh, the ball. My story is a little bit different. Um, so I think at a very young age, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be in the courtroom. I wanted to do this. So um, it started off with being really active in grassroots things. Um, I was doing all these like nonprofit organizations and, and doing grassroots like petitions and like talking to people about different issues that really, really, really um, I was passionate about. And um, so I love that ground level of it. But then I saw after a few years of doing like petitions and like marches and like all this other stuff, you can only get so far. You know what I mean? So you could only get so far. So I really wanted a seat at the table. And for me, it was going to law school, being able to advocate for people on a different level, being at the table, being more aggressive in regards to like helping people out. So it was kind of like a natural pr progress for me. All right, all right, thank you. Mr. Bill, when did you get the bug? So I basically got the bug um, probably when I was in college. But I grew up in an Irish immigrant family in Brooklyn, and no one in my family had ever gone to college, let alone to any kind of a professional school. So when I finally got into college, I was bitten very seriously by the English bug, and I was going to be an English professor, absolutely convinced of it. And um, someplace along the way, many of the professors that I truly admired at my school were denied tenure. And I said, if they can't get tenure, how the heck am I going to make a living as an English professor? Because they were so much more, more brilliant than my 18 to 22 year old mind could comprehend. Mm -hmm. So um, I had uh, 
forced myself to join the debate team when I was in high school because I was so shy, frankly. And I saw it as a way of overcoming my shyness. And it sort of worked. And um, I finally decided that the, the thing that I truly loved in life besides English literature was uh, debating. And I thought that being a trial attorney would be a natural adjunct, a natural Ooh. extension of that. And um, I investigated it and I finally found out that uh, it really was what I wanted to do. So I've been doing it for the last 38 years. Hmm, 38 years, Sherry, 38 years. Wow. Yes, I'm, thir I'm 39 now. <laughs> <laughs> he was a child prodigy. <laughs> yeah, and, and by the way, that was not an authentic statement. But, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of self-selection in the law. You find the areas of the law that you like and you gravitate towards them, or you move into different areas as your career progresses. I became a litigator the day I graduated from law school, and I've done it without stop for 38 years. So wow. it is something I'm truly passionate about. And I'd just like to say that we know in the law that uh, Jennifer and Bill, there are only 10% of us that can actually do the work they do. Uh, wow. It's very grueling. And I, I've just finished a case for seven years as co-counsel and never said a word. But I have watched for the last seven years what they have to do is so different from what I do every day. And I give them credit because there's, there's so much more that goes into the strategy, so much more that goes into the understanding of, of getting the job done, all the rules, all of the deadlines, and then just the sheer um, pressure that I, I don't have to deal. I deal with other kinds of things. But what they do, I, I re only 10% of us can do what they do, okay? That, and that should be noted that that does take authenticity of itself. You know, I'm going to do it. So, to them. Uh, that's so sweet. Thanks. So, I mean, you could tell by my grades, like they're all coming in here. The stress level is insane. I could tell you that. Are you seriously going to sit there? And Bill, and Bill, we're not going to mention what's going on over there. You're going to sit there and compare hairlines with me? I said gray hair. I didn't say hair a lot. No, I got them on the side. <laughs> so, you know, this is about authenticity. And, and Patty, you just kind of walked us into that. Uh, so thank you. Uh, so think about it. Think about authentic authenticity and practicing law. What, where does that, just on a general level, let's start on a general level and talk about what that means. Could I take a first stab at it, please? Absolutely. So one of my passions in life, besides being a lawyer, is educating younger lawyers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I often lecture about is um, the question of how you maintain your credibility in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a big fan of lawyer jokes, but one of the most famous lawyer jokes is, how do you know when a lawyer is lying? And the answer is, his or her lips are moving. So, one, okay. so one, of the, one of the major things that, that we as a um, profession face is the inherent distrust of the American public. And, and frankly, that distrust has only been intensified in recent years because there's all of this concept of fake news. We hear all of these things about lawyers committing absolutely egregious behavior 
uh, in furtherance of their clients' interests. Michael Cohen comes to mind. Um, so, so when you are an attorney and you're standing in front of a group of 12 strangers, and they are by definition strangers, the question then becomes, how do you connect with them? How do you find some authentic route that can grow between you and them, a connection, a real connection? And, and frankly, there's no good answer for it. One of the first lessons I learned as a very young lawyer is, if I walk into the courtroom, the only person who can walk into the courtroom is Bill Dolan. No one else can walk in and stand in front of a jury and hope to tell them the truth and persuade them truthfully about what's going on. I can't pretend to be someone other than who I am. And that's one of the first teachings of authenticity in the courtroom. You have to be yourself. So if, for example, you're a somewhat scrappy, pugnacious, Irish immigrant kid, I'm going to go into the courtroom exactly doing that. Uh, if you're smart, don't act dumb. If you're dumb, don't act smart. And that's good advice for most lawyers, by the way. So um, the, the other thing is that when you speak, you must prove. Because everything you say to a jury has to be backed up by evidence. They're inherently going to doubt you. So if you make an assertion, you have to have the goods and back it up immediately. I'll pass the mic. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll, um, I'll talk about like, since you talked about the courtroom, I'll talk about like one-on-one. -on -one. I represent um, victims and motor vehicle accident, medical malpractice, any type of injury victim. Um, so a lot of what I do um, is like one-on-one -on -one stuff, um, just developing that rapport with the client. Um, and that's huge because PI attorneys in Philadelphia and just everywhere, it's like one out of three people here, you know? So everybody wants the business. Everybody's going after that client. And so you have to basically um, distinguish yourself from someone else. And what I have is I'm me and I'm going to treat you as if you are family and make sure that you get the top dollar. And they trust me because I'm answering my phones. I'm like telling them um, the strength and weaknesses of their case. I'm not telling them like, okay, this is a million dollar case. And then when it comes down to settlement, try to convince them to settle for 10,000, you know, which happens all the time. And so I get a lot of clients from just word of mouth. Um, but I think it's just important to understand and connect with people on their story. And I think with everything that Bill said, in addition to that, but I think it really starts with that one-on-one, -on -one, that client relationship. And, and also I have not signed up clients, even with good cases, just because, you know, for some reason they're off, you know, in our relationship and the vibe was off. And I just felt like this client is going to be a problem later on in personal injury cases. It could go from six months. It could go to two years. It could go three years. So it's like that initial conversation is so important because I'm like, this person is going to be involved in my life for the next six months, two years, maybe three. Do I want this person? You know, so just being true in regards to just knowing who you are and who you're compatible with. Good. That's good. Patty, I see you over there thinking, what's, what's going on? I'm, I'm with Jennifer because for for me, for me, it's it's not three years. It's more like I have had some of the same clients since 1995. 
you know, in my business, they change, they morph, they evolve, they may go from, you know, um, musician to filmmaker. I one client moved out to Venice, California. He's a filmmaker now. He was with me, he's 40 something. He was with me when he was in high school. Hmm. So, and I still take care of them. So it's the same thing about the client relationship, but there's also, I think, in, 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 in my industry or in my, in the work that I do, they have to know I'm going to fight for them on the contract. They're going to have to know that when I negotiate terms for them, that I'm not going to cave, that I'm not going to say you're good enough, that I'm going to get the best deal I can possibly get. I recently had a client that had um, a few label offers and I pitched, you know, I shopped the deal elsewhere and I got better money, better points and better home for them. Um, and, and, and it, it was in a genre that isn't really so, um, it, you know, comport so well with women. Sure. So, <laughs> so it, you know, it, it's, it's always a stretch sometimes, but I, I, I do, I, I'm totally with Jennifer in terms of you. I've showed people the door in my office. I, I don't think I'm the right lawyer for you. And look, I'm in Boston. That's not the entertainment capital of the country. <laughs> I had to make it work in this place. You know, I had to, I didn't go to New, LA or New York. Um, I had to, I had to make it work here. So I had to be, you know, I had to work really hard at making people believe that, okay, I'm the lawyer that for you, you don't have to go to New York or LA. I could do a great, a great job for you just cause I'm here and, and helping you from here. So, and that was by the same, you know, in the same um, principle of developing the right rapport with the client. Thank you. Sherry, I'm going to keep it going with this same line of questioning. Go for it. Going a little old school here. I'm a movie buff. One of my favorite scenes, a few good men, you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. If you <laughs> saw that movie, saw that scene, how did it land on you? And or if you did not see it, how forthcoming are you with your clients when perhaps you feel as though they can't handle the truth. Who wants to take that one on? I, I got to go with it real fast because <laughs> I have to tell people they're too heavy. They're not, they don't wear the right clothes. They have, I have to help that they, they I've, I've actually had to have people shove one guy to the side so that the front guy is a different guy from the guy that started the thing. I have to actually tell people how to behave. And I actually sometimes have to pick what they're gonna sing or perform. So I'm, I'm always in the truth place and I have to say, I, I have to tell stories as to why I have to hurt your feelings. You know, I do my best to, 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 to mitigate, you know, to, to ameliorate that truth, but I can't not say something to somebody you know, Queen Latifah can get away with it, but you can't, you know, I, I, I've had to say that. And I just, it breaks my heart because the truth often hurts so many people and keeps them from pursuing their dreams. Yeah. Yeah. I think delivery is everything too. Um, I deal with a lot of, and it's kind of funny when Patty was saying that about telling them what to wear and things like that. Um, I, have often went to like the gap with my clients and say, Hey, listen, your boobs are out. This is a deposition. Like you need to be a little bit more conservative. And I do tell them that 
beforehand, but you, you would be surprised at what people show up to your office um, and just even to court and all that stuff matters. But I always deliver it in a way that, hey, listen, I have your best interests at heart and in mind. And I'm telling you that what you're trying to convey with your boobs out is not what we need to be conveying right now. You know what I mean? So I just, it's just like an awkward conversation sometimes. Like this one, I, I remember this one client, it was a deposition. I told her how to dress. I, you know, just make sure that you look nice and neat, professional. Well, don't you know, she comes with her boobs out um, and not, no backup. Now she's too big to fit in my stuff. I have given like my blazer before. Wow. I've done so many different wow. things. This time, this particular time, I took my stapler and I was stapling. I was like Martha Stewart, like hooking her up where her boobs are not showing. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> it's just wild. We see some really wild things. And I think it's all about delivering it and letting them know like, hey, listen, I'm trying to get you money at the end of the day. So I need you help me help you basically is like my delivery. So, you know, it all works out. I don't think I've offended anybody yet. <laughs> Bill, how about you? Jennifer, that's remarkable client service, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. I personally have never take. stapled anybody's clothing together. <laughs> so, so just building on something that Jennifer said, really short story. When I was an extremely young lawyer, I was prepping a witness, and I failed to tell the witness to dress professionally. And he showed up in his dep for his deposition wearing a T-shirt, that said, life's big questions. Is there a God? Is there life after death? Where are the cookies? And uh, <laughs> I learned a pretty important lesson from that one. One of the, one of the major hard truths that I have to deliver is I, I typically do not represent uh, plaintiffs. I typically represent defendants. And um, sometimes it's very hard um, when you're representing a defendant to say to them, you know, the facts are on your side, the law is on your side, and here's why I'm recommending that we settle. And um, my wife ultimately learned to compress that entire discussion into the following question. You're right. So what? So it is sometimes a great challenge to speak to clients about the realities of the legal system how it does have inherent unfairness, how it is immensely costly, and why sometimes the best thing is to not operate from principle, but to operate from pragmatics and step away from litigation. Absolutely. I, and that's another thing. It's so emotional. Like on both sides of the fence, I'm on the plaintiff side, um, the victim side, the injury side of things. So, but people are so emotionally attached to this. And a lot of times, especially for me and my clients, their life has taken such a totally different direction than expected. So it's like, you have to be sensitive to that. You have to like meet them where they're at, you know? Wow. So I had a, I had a situation with an attorney where um, I felt strongly that we should be in a jury trial and they decided it should be a bench trial. And we disagreed on this. And they ended up doing a bench trial against my wishes. Oh. And so one of the things that has been interesting to me, and, and I've had uh, big chunks of my time spent in litigation, 
And so what's interesting to me is how much my knowledge helped the case, helped the lawyers that I was working with. So my understanding of the courtroom law, what's possible, the costs involved, all of that kind of stuff really does help the whole process. So when you're thinking about your interactions with clients and they may not know a lot about the law, they may not know a lot about the choices that they're making. That's got to be really hard for you um, to, you know, sort of respect where those people are, where you need to get them to. And there's a, there's a thing around authenticity in there in terms of who you are and how you get people to make that or create that understanding for people. Was that an unclear question? No, it was perfectly clear. So, so Sherry, most of the work that I do, of course, involves representing large corporations. And typically they do have a general counsel. So one of the things that I find in at least my area of the law is that I'm dealing with incredibly sophisticated people who do understand the process. But every once in a while, I do pro bono work for individuals. For example, some of the hardest, most heart-wrenching work I've ever done is going down to advise people who've been detained after crossing the border in Laredo, Texas, in some of the government's holding facilities down there. And those conversations are literally scarring to me and oftentimes the individuals who have been um, held by ICE uh, in these detention facilities because you have to tell them, despite all of their hopes, all of their desires, all of their fears that led them to cross the border, they're going back and the chances of them ever getting back into this country legally have virtually become nil. Heart-wrenching. Hmm. Oh my gosh, I almost started tearing up when you were talking about that, Bill, because um, you may know this, but um, I'm the president of the Hispanic Bar Association, and one of the issues that we're dealing with right now is the immigration and ICE and all that stuff, and it's, it is heart-wrenching, and the stories that you have to hear, and it's hard, um, for me too, to like separate and not bring things home. I remember the one time um, my first job interview was um, for the city and it was, I forget what the department was called, but um, anyways, long story short, she was asking me whether or not I could handle um, representing minors that were abused. And like the things that she was saying in the interview I was just like, I know for a fact I can't handle this on a day-to-day -day basis because, you know, just hearing the stories of, of these children and what they have to go through on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like insane. Um, but I, I, I definitely will go back to your uh, question. I'm sorry, I got kind of emotional uh, there about that. But um, in regards to like my clients and kind of explaining, I think not every client is good for every county. Um, there's counties that are, are different and better for different clients. So Philadelphia is definitely very liberal. Um, so I could have the same case in Philadelphia and it be worth $75,000 in, in Philadelphia, right? That same case, same factor, same plaintiff, same, same everything in let's say Bucks County could be half of that. So I think the strategy comes from is knowing your client, knowing um, what county you're in, 
knowing judges, knowing your jury pool, like all that comes into a decision on whether it's a bench trial, a jury trial, uh, just a mediation, some other type of ADR. Um, so I think that all goes into the decision on whether or not I put somebody in front of a jury or not. Yeah. A question, and it's based on the research that I did because I studied authenticity at work. And I went into my research thinking that authenticity was a matter of either or. You're either authentic or inauthentic. And after several years of research, I changed that belief and decided based on what I, what I read and tested that authenticity is a matter of degrees, more or less degrees of authenticity. I'm curious about how you feel about that distinction or the juxtaposition to either or, or degrees of authenticity. And and, why, yeah. why don't we start with Patty? Cause she actually didn't get to answer the last question. Oh, that's cool. I, I, all I was gonna say in addressing the last question is it's the same in doing a transaction. Like the, the client has to know the contract yeah. and the client has to understand the contract and I go through the contract piece by piece by piece for their rights because it's their rights you know yeah. so that so they they have to go through the same education as if you went through a a case uh it's just a contract so it's the same format it's just a different approach but um i, I don't I, I so jim i'm trying to get my head around the question of authentic versus a little authentic versus because you know we all wear different hats so what's the you know, I, I work with every genre. I even, I grew up, um, my dad was from Texas. So I grew up with country music. Now, I went to the conservatory because I abhor country music. I mean, I couldn't stand listening to that stuff growing up. So I decided to study Bach and Beethoven and Brahms, right? But here I am finding myself working with the hip hop, working with the r and I'm working with um, the heavy metal. I'm working with the pop. And then sometimes I get a, a classical person or composer for film and TV or whatever. But I have to wear all these hats. So what's authentic? Am I, um, am I fronting? If I tell somebody that I know, um, you know, that I know about Lil Wayne, that I know about Post Malone, that I know about Rock, am I fronting? Or am I authentic? I think I'm authentic because... For me, all music is music. The people that I work with are creators. And so and whether that's creating a, um, a manual for uh, an educational, you know, I work with the Drone Racing League, and that's all products around drones and doing all their work. Am I authentic if I'm saying I'm not, I'm not somebody that's a drone racer, but I got to get to that headspace? So I, I think that we all wear different hats. So we have to sit in the place of the client, like Jennifer was talking about, in terms of what making them family. And I don't think that you lose your authenticity by um, by doing by trying to get into who they are. And, and I don't think it's fronting. I think it's truthful. So I hope that was. I was Patty doesn't front. She knows. No fronting. Jen, Bill, how about you? More or less either or degrees? Are we kaleidoscope with authenticity? We're changing, evolving. What do you think? Jennifer? I think that we're changing and evolving. It just depends, you know? Like, I don't think that you're being fake by 
you know, adapting to your environment, you know? Um, so I think it definitely evolves. Mm -hmm. I'll just make two comments on this. Hopefully both of them brief. One of the, one of the things that I frequently find myself involved in is settlement discussions. And, you know, you go into a settlement discussion and your client has said, here are the limits of your authority, the high end and the low end and um, our walkaway points. And you start negotiating with the other side and you say to the other side, well, we will not do less than this. And you know, your client will, is that inauthentic? Is it improper? Is it a lie? And is it unethical? And believe it or not, the lawyers canons of ethics say, you can actually fib in those contexts. You don't have to be truthful about what the lower end of your client's settlement demand is. Um, and that's not universal, but it's generally embodied in the codes of ethics of, of most states. Because we all know that the marketplace for settlements sometimes involves a little bit of exaggeration, bragging, things like that. Um, the other time that, that I do think that, that a certain amount of adjustment is sometimes necessary is when you're going into a strange courtroom and you're working with local counsel and their interests are going to be much different than yours. So for example, I once walked into a courtroom where the judge was sitting down with opposing counsel in our case, sitting down at a table in the middle of the courtroom and I heard the lawyer talking to the judge and uh, the lawyer said to the judge, well, I'll pick you up for our little fishing expedition tomorrow morning about 5.30. And I'm instantly saying to myself, I am doomed. And then the two men swiveled as we entered the courtroom, me and my local counsel. And the lawyer uh, said, hey, I was just telling the judge, I'll pick him up at 5.30. We'll pick you up at 5.45. So oh. all of a sudden I became very interested in fishing even though I've never voluntarily fished in my life. That was definitely a little bit of fronting. But, you know, I, I actually started to ask some intelligent questions, not like I knew anything about it. I didn't say, oh, my God, I'm the greatest sports fisherman in the world, and I have, you know, marlins on my wall. But I did ask some questions about it and established a basis of rapport. And it pretty became obvious, or pretty soon became obvious, that I was dead ignorant, but willing to learn. And that formed its mm -hmm. own basis for some discussion. Good stuff, good stuff. What do you think, Cher? Well, you know, what's, what's coming to mind, especially with all these stories, is, is that in the moment, you have to get really centered in who you are. You know, we, we talk about, in our fearless authenticity, what we talk about is how much are you willing to show up? And so how do you stay solid in who you are? And then, you know, go with your intuition that says, this is what I need to do next. And that's the fearless authenticity. It's, it's asking all of us to step out and be the bigger person, be uh, willing to take the risk of showing up, um, letting people see who you are um, and the power of who you are, and then connecting through that. And Bill, your story was interesting because it, it really is, you know, you're going to go through these doubts and go, oh, darn, what? <laughs> this does not look good for me. Um, but then finding the path to say, how do we connect? So what are some times, what, 
thinking back in terms of your, uh, your careers, what do you think was the biggest challenge to you in really showing up as who you are? You're in my head, Sherry. You're in my head. How's it going? That's good. Good. I think for me, like the first year, um, right when I get out of law school, I'm like at a PI firm and I'm working with a partner and, you know, we have nothing, nothing in common. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when you're in a young associate, you're like ghostwriting for the partner and you have to really develop their style, like how they think, how they write, how they put things together. And you're, so I think that it, it's difficult, especially as a young lawyer at that time, just developing someone else's style. And so you have to like kind of step back from your own style because I write totally different than that partner. But I think eventually after two years, you know, two years working with him, I knew his style. Then I was able to incorporate my style too and just present it to him in a way because I think having women at the table matters. Um, especially uh, on a lot of these cases where some of the issues are very um, women specific. And can I just jump into a quick story real quick? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was sitting as an arbitrator, right? Um, and what was interesting is this doesn't happen that often, but there was three women on the arbitration panel. And there was actually another woman just like sitting in to see like how, how we run a arbit arbitration panel. Then we had a woman defense counsel, a woman defendant. We had a woman who had an issue. Um, she actually had an abortion and they left something inside her, not to be graphic. But, um, oh, and guess who she was represented by? A male. <laughs> Which was so mind blowing to me because I'm on a panel, I can't make arguments for her because I, I'm there just to listen and make a determination later on. Um, but there were so many issues and so many things that he could have made. His arguments could have been so much better had he had someone um, in his office or actually just you know, ran it by a woman because this was a woman issue. Um, but he didn't. And you could tell by you know, his arguments, lack of arguments, all those things. So I guess my point of, of telling you guys that story is that there's, it's so important for us to be present and to bring our experiences, whether it be our background, um, you know, our heritage or whatever to the table, because that's the way that you'll be able to represent oh. your client to the fullest. And when it comes down to it, and like I talked to the attorney afterwards, after we rendered our opinion, I said, listen, I would have never put this as an arbitration because like, if you submit it as an arbitration, the most you could get is 50,000 on a good day. Um, but if it's a major, you could go sky's the limit. And to me, the issues were sky's the limit. Like you could have got some women on your panel that would have been outraged and you would have got a better number for your client, you know? So I do think that, you know, just being true to ourselves and like delivering that not only helps the partner or the firm, but it helps the client at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good story. That's amazing. Great, great story. How was that advice received by the way? By the gentleman? Okay. 
um, from the, the attorney, he loved it. I mean, he was like, I can't believe it. Like I'm, 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 I didn't even think that far into it because, you know, I was comparing the item that was left inside her and it was left inside her for like a few days and how we basically are not even able to have tampons over an extended period of time. And just giving him that, he ended up appealing the arbitration award. And now he's going, I mean, I, I didn't follow it after that, but at least he knew like foreign objects, number one, are not supposed to be in your body. But once I gave him that comparison to a tampon, you know, where you're only supposed to have that like a couple hours a day, not even, um, then it kind of clicked in his mind, like, wait, this is a gold mine that I have here. Why am I saying that this is like $50,000, you know? And like, he wasn't, he didn't spend a lot of time with a client because she had another aspect to her claim, not just the injuries that she sustained, the physical injury, but also the mental injuries because she was very religious. So she felt like God was like, penalizing her and this happened because she did something against god so that's why it makes so much sense to like really sit down get the story of your client because then you could be that much better at advocating for for her at the end of the day and once you identify their story make it your own kind of um you're gonna get more money for your client like i would i was like dying when I saw this. I'm just like, this should not be a $50,000. I mean, I was mad that I couldn't give her more, but I was like, we have to give her 50. But I, I did recommend that he appeal it. And then, you know, but he, he was very grateful, you know, and I think that he's going to definitely include other people in conversations when he has cases like that, you know? Powerful. Thank you for sharing. Uh, send Cynthia any questions any chat room what's happening in the chat room oh this is really good we've got one comment from Amanda in my work I coach clients in navigating cross-cultural situations while being authentic to their true selves your thoughts have helped me think about my work from a new angle and she had to leave so thank you to Amanda for that and then you have a question the question is what is an example of degrees of being authentic and have any of the guests had to have degrees of authenticity with their clients? If so, why? Maybe we can blend that with the other question because Bill and Patty didn't get a chance to, right. uh, to answer. So maybe you can, maybe there's a, uh, a, a, a an overlap. Well, there, there are certainly degrees of authenticity in all sorts of things. And, you know, for example, if you're dealing with a corporate negotiation with someone on the other side from a large corporation, uh, it's not exactly a lot of soul bearing that goes on and you're not necessarily putting your, your entire personality on the table. It's a matter of dollars and cents, typically fairly dry and mundane. Um, there can be emotions around it, but it, th those kinds of corporate negotiations don't entail the same kind of things. But um, I mentioned before that one of the things that we as a firm do is we provide support to people who've been detained, women uh, who've been detained and are being held in, in a federal holding facility in Laredo. And um, I think the hardest connection that I ever had to try to establish was with a, a woman who had walked 
almost a thousand miles to try and get into the United States and was picked up the second she crossed the border. And just picture the room that we're in. We're in a really tiny interrogation cell. And it's not much wider than the plastic tables at which we sit. And inside that room are this woman who's frightened and concerned about everything that's happened to her, no idea what her fate is ultimately going to be, a translator, and then me, someone who looks as different, who has had as different a life as you could possibly imagine from this woman who out of desperation and fear walked a thousand miles to come to this country and then gets immediately thrown into a prison. And um, I, I could tell that there was just nothing that I was saying to her that, that she was connecting with. And I could tell that there was intense resistance. And I could tell that, that she somehow thought that I was a government plant and that I was actually there to try and interfere with her rights and to, to provide her bad advice. And it, it, it took quite a while. And then, and then finally, after a certain point, I asked the translator to translate this question. And I said, why don't you trust me? And she looked down and looked up and there were tears flowing down her face. And she said, I don't trust white people. And it was a soul wrenching moment. And I realized in that second, the enormity of the gap and Ultimately, my inability to, I, I, I couldn't correct everything, but I understood so powerfully that I had to do everything I could to try and help her. And I'm not going to say that she walked out of that room with immensely different opinions of all white people, but she certainly understood at that moment, by the time we left, and given the advice that I gave her, the legal support that we ultimately provided to her, unsuccessfully, I hate to say, uh, she did end up going back to her home country. But she and I had hundreds of hours of intense conversation after that, before she was finally returned to her home. Um, but that, that was, if you want to talk about degrees of authenticity and degrees of, of humanity and connection, that gap between the corporate discussion and the discussion with that woman seems to me to embody both ends of of the story of authenticity. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How do you follow that up, Bill? <laughs> I could tell a joke. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's such an amazing story. I, I love that story. And the fact that you were able to connect. Um, so it reminds me kind of of when I was on a campaign, I was in a campaign in Poughkeepsie, New York. And I remember the candidate wanted to reach out to Latino um, pastors um, in Poughkeepsie. So we had a room of like 30 pastors and he's like addressing the group of Latino uh, pastors. And, you know, they're basically talking about immigration and talking about some issues that are really sensitive to the Latino community. And he turns his back and starts like making coffee while they're talking about these issues that are like gut wrenching and like have impacted not only them, but their, 
uh, communities, their congregation, and all this other stuff. I was like, let me get the coffee for you. So I started making the coffee for him because I'm just like, how do you turn your back on people that are telling you their issues, right? So the conversation I had with him afterwards, I said, you know, in, in that room, there must have been 30 people that you actually saw. But with pastors, they represent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, right? So, you know, and then also just educating him on respect. First off, I thought that was like universal, but in my community, that is such a sign of disrespect if you're talking to someone and you're making, and you're turning your back on them. I thought that was universal, but I don't know, who knows? But, you know, I think it says a lot, Bill, that you were willing to identify that there was a distrust and instead of like backing away from it, like really saying, hey, let's get down to the bottom of it. How can I get you to trust me? I know we look different, but I'm on your team. And I think that that's what we do all the time as attorneys. Can be challenging. Yeah. yeah. Patty, back to you. I, I just, I have this, I don't have the level of, of, um, uh, of impact on a social level, huh? mine is is really taking, you know, taking handling and taking care of what is cherished by the people that create it, and um, and making sure that they uh, feel like they can trust me to give them the best advice about that. So, um, and sometimes it isn't what they want to hear. Uh, oftentimes, I'll, they'll come to me for all kinds of brainstorming. And they have to trust that I'm going to give them, um, you know, that, that I'm going to hear them and that I'm going to feel them, you know. So it's, it's uh, and those people come from all over. Uh, and then in my teaching at BU, I teach international students. So my students come from China, India, Mexico, Iran, uh, Japan, all over the world. And I'm the American in the room of lawyers from all over the world trying to explain to them American law as it relates to, uh, you know, things that we create. And, and I have to share culture with them. So part of what we create as Americans is culturally, for them, is culturally uh, important. So, you know, I'm always have, having to uh, tell the truth. Uh, I, I remember last year, at Boston University, I remember telling the students about Thanksgiving. They weren't getting, uh, you know, what is it? What does it mean to Americans? What does it mean to the world? Um, where do we live? What where we live uh, it is an important place for this country. So I think that, in, and and then when I was in England, it was the same thing. Teaching there, um, sharing the culture it means that you have to be authentic as an American. Uh, and that, that means different things, some different things now, <laughs> but um, I, I really believe this, that we change the world one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And you can't look at group, you have to look one person at a time. And so if you treat one person the way that you would want to be treated, then you can change the world. And so I tell that to my students and I tell that to my clients, you have the power. We all have the power. If we are, if we all have commitment, if we all have integrity, if we all have generosity, if we're all grateful, 
then we all can make a difference in the world. And it doesn't matter what you do. It just matters how you live your life. And, uh, and, and for me, that's sharing what I know about the law and taking care of people. And for you guys, it's how, you know, for Bill and Jennifer, it's how you're entrusted to protect, um, you know, the best interests of the people that come to you. So I, I don't know if that um, answers it. For me, it's always, it's always about just changing the world with one person at a time, making a difference in that person's life at that particular time. That's, I, that's why I came to this planet. So I, you know, the law and the way that I do it is the vehicle through which I was sent here. Uh, but I know that's true. And I know it's probably true for everybody if we think about it. Thank you. So, I'm sticking with the one person. The one person I'd like for you to focus on right now is you. Back in 1998, I, I went into a client and did what I thought was a fabulous motivational keynote. It was a client that my colleague said, don't go in there. Don't go in there. Leadership is different. And the participants loved it, but the leadership did not. And I questioned whether I should be doing this for a living. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, maybe I didn't make the right choice, or maybe this, this isn't for me, or second guess? Did you have a second guess moment or a situation? Or, and if you did, how did you plow through it? And that's for all three of you. You don't have to answer because we're getting but that's for anyone who wants to be vulnerable right now. And if something comes to mind. All right. I, do you mind if I, if I kick this one off? So I was an extremely young lawyer and I was representing um, uh, a company that had a bit of a tiff with, with a neighboring um, commercial concern. And I had to go down to downstate Illinois to argue this. And downstate Illinois, as you know, is quite different than Chicago. So uh, I walk into the courtroom. It is filled with lawyers. We're going to have an argument about a preliminary injunction. And I probably was about two years out of law school. So uh, I walk up to the, uh, uh, to the bench. And uh, the first question out of the judge's mouth is, um, Mr. Dolan, can I help you settle this case? And of course, I was two years out of law school and, and apparently the most brilliant lawyer on the planet and I said to the judge, no, Your Honor, uh, we've tried to settle without success. So the judge told us to proceed. And we were allowed approximately 15 minutes on this preliminary injunction argument in front of the judge. And uh, at uh, the end of the argument, the judge said, uh, Mr. Dolan, your motion for a preliminary injunction is denied, uh, TRO. And uh, I'm gathering up my papers and the judge literally put his hand over the microphone. And he said, Mr. Dolan, could you come up to the bench? And I walk up to the bench and uh, the judge said to me, um, Mr. Dolan, how long have you been practicing law? And I said, about two years, Your Honor. And he said, I have got to tell you that that was one of the best oral presentations I've ever heard by a young lawyer in my life. And I was like so full of myself and I was so proud. And then the judge said this. So the next time a judge asks you if he can help you settle the case, don't tell him to go F himself. Now get the hell out of my courtroom. 
So I, I, I did have some serious doubts about continuing in the profession at that point, but I, I somehow overcame them and I'm still practicing now. There is a huge amount of anxiety. The concept of fake it till you make it does have a certain amount of reality for lawyers because law school does not truly prepare you for the actual job of what you have to do in representing clients. Sherry, you want to land this plane? We're getting close to the end. Well, I don't know if uh, we got a couple of minutes. Patty or uh, Jen, do you have anything on that last question? Or I know we're getting, it's getting late. I would just say that, I, you know, the, the, the internet decimated the business I was in. And it still is, you know, and, and now the pandemic has decimated the business I'm in. So I would just have to say for me, I, it is what, should I be doing this anymore? Is it worth it for me to be doing anymore? I could quit if I wanted to quit. I guess I could quit. Uh, it's really more the, the, the environment that keeps it, you know, from you from succeeding. So you have to plow through. You have to keep plowing through. Yeah. Okay. Jen, you got anything to throw in at the end here? For me, I, I think um, now I'm just exploring like maybe other practices that I want to do. Like right now I just do personal injury. Like that's my main gig. And so I get bored every once in a while. Like, okay, did you get, did you run the red light? Who had the light? You know, that kind of stuff. Like I want to do something a little bit more exciting than that. Um, so you weren't trained properly. <laughs> I'm supposed to be thinking about that all the time. Yeah, red light, green light. Like, you know, like sometimes that gets like, you know, boring. Um, so I don't know. I, I love what I do. I love my clients. I love being in the courtroom. I love chatting it up. I love doing all that stuff. But I'm thinking maybe, you know, seven years in, I want to expand a little bit and take on other clients, like more like, you know, social injustice and civil rights, you know, so I'm having that little bug right now. It's like, okay, let's do something else too, you know, in addition to what I think I'm she doing. should run for office. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> oh, we are at 1258. First of all, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for being our guest today. As usual, thank you to our doctors, Dr. James Smith Jr. and Dr. Sherry Maloof. Um, our next webcast here, oh, and also I noticed uh, several people who have been here in the past, so thank you to our fearless followers. Um, our next uh, webcast is going to be September 9th, and it's going to be Authenticity and Politicians. So uh, you'll be getting our, our invitation to that, another good one, but um, thank you again for coming and thanks to all. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. It was fun. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye guys. Bye-bye.